When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to Inside of You with Michael Rosenbaum. Greetings. Hello, Ryan. Howdy, Michael. Hey, folks. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for uh, giving the podcast support. I really appreciate it. If you're here for the first time, listen to some other episodes. Write a review. Tell us what you think. You can follow us on the podcast and uh, keep up to date with what we're doing at Inside of You Podcast on Instagram and Facebook, at Inside of You Pod on Twitter. I really appreciate you choosing this podcast. There's so many other podcasts around, but you know I get deep. You know I get real. I keep it real, Ryan. We get deep. We get deep. And we got a great podcast today in just a second, but I just want to share a few things with you. Uh-huh. I am going to be in St. Louis this coming weekend to sign autographs. Tom Welling and I are doing a Smallville Nights. Then I'll be in Liverpool the weekend of the 21st. Uh, I will be uh, June 10th that weekend. I'll be in Illinois, Metropolis, Illinois, Metropolis, Illinois, signing Mm -hmm. autographs, doing a Smallville Nights. And then I'll be going to Australia June 17th through the 27th. Perth and Sydney, get your tickets. Um, A lot of fun to be had. Um, Also, I want to thank my patrons, lovable patrons. I always give them a shout out at the end, all their names, the top tier patrons. If you want to support the podcast, it means a lot. It helps the podcast substantially. Go to patreon.com slash inside of you. Also, a big stage at 2 p.m. and 6 p.m. Um, May 28th, 2 p.m. and 6 p.m. Get your tickets. Go to stageit.com or you can go to sunspin.com. We also have Zooms if you want to get a Zoom. And I'm on the Cameo. That's about all I'll say about that. Uh, Patreon, you can join Patreon by going to patreon.com slash inside of you and support the podcast. Uh, Judd Apatow. Yep. This is one that Ryan was starstruck. It's not often you meet somebody who sort of shaped your comedy brain. <laughs> That's sort of true. I mean, yeah. he, he shaped everyone's brain. Yeah. Comedy brain. He's uh, What I love about him is he's the kind of guy that you can direct message into Instagram and, mm-hmm. and say, hey, I'd love you to do my podcast. And he's like, yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. Couldn't believe it. I mean, you know, I get people that are half the stars he is. One fourth the stars that don't even respond. He responded and he came on the podcast and he was so open and funny and giving. He sent me a whole bunch of cool stuff to watch, to prepare for the interview, like the George Carlin special that's coming out, yeah. uh, Bubble. Uh, yeah, the Bubble. I mean, t- he's just, uh, he's extraordinary. His books, uh, he, you're going to hear about it all. Uh, without further ado, we should just get into it because it's a wonderful, wonderful time I had with Judd Apatow. Let's get inside of Judd Apatow. It's my point of view. You're listening to Inside of You with Michael Rosenbaum. Inside of You with Michael Rosenbaum was not recorded in front of a live studio audience. Yeah. I mean, the first thing you said is like, oh, you collect shit. I collect shit. Uh, yes. And that made me feel good because I've had many people like Bob Odenkirk, Dak Shepard, guys have come in here as I name drop and they just uh, sort of say, what's wrong with you? Why do you get autographs? Why do you collect things? What's what's going on? So wrong. That's so Bob. 
<laughs> so, so Dax. <laughs> to like shit on our joy Just, and our memorabilia. Bob in his house without one breaking bad, like <laughs> fake drug packet. Yeah. That's what we would have done. We would took the blue meth right. from the set, from yes. the prop people, and framed it. Framed it. That's you where it should be. It. I have Breaking Bad memorabilia in there, and I wasn't even in, on the show. Come on. Dax could have had a without a paddle paddle <laughs> up on the wall. I'm all for that stuff. I remember Jim Carrey framed some of his outfits from the movies. So in his house? He had a movie theater. I still He still does. And and so he would have you know the, the Ace Ventura outfit and the Cable Guy outfit. And I thought, that's the coolest thing ever. I loved it. I'm all for... The worship of all of that stuff. I, when I was a kid, obsessed with autographs. Yeah. So I'm like a kid on Long Island. I just so want to touch showbiz. I don't know how to do it. And as a little kid, the only thing I could think of was writing letters. And there would be these little books you could get, Homes of the Stars. And they'd show like Lucy's house and Jimmy Stewart's house. And in the back, it would have the address of NBC and ABC. And I would just sit there all day long writing letters to james garner and hal linden come on you you did that you you wrote letters to hundreds of of, hundreds of and i got tons of weird autographs i have gilda radner's autograph from back then jackie gleason they're probably all written by secretaries i figured out (laughs) later and that breaks my heart i doubt it come on you really think so who knows gilda seems real (laughs) and and i love that collection and i was laughing uh because there was a, like a fire scare in our neighborhood a few years ago. And like that was one of the first things I grabbed to put in the car when we were evacuating was my autograph collection from sixth grade. <laughs> hey, there's nothing wrong with that. No, it's what, the best. What do you have? First of all, your wife, Leslie Mann, who I think is fucking hilarious and hot. Can I say that? I agree. Yeah. But how do you, I mean, does she say, no, Judd, we're not putting that in the house. Oh, that, oh does she, she turn knows, things down. Oh, she knows that, uh, that I'm weird about that stuff. And the funny thing is I know the second I die, it goes in a dumpster. <laughs> There's no one who will go like, let's go through dad stuff. And I'll hang some of it in my house to remember dad. It's straight in the burner. <laughs> There's no one who cares about it. I can't even get my kids to sit with me once to go. Do you want to look, look at it? Zero. But I have my office and... What do you have in there? What are your like most, like the, the things that you love the most? They're on the wall that your prized possessions. What are those? Well, I just switched offices. My old office had what you would expect. The posters from the movies signed and, and photos of everyone we've worked with, things like that. Then I just moved to new offices. All the walls have nothing on them because I'm like, I guess it's like a new era um. and I should let... The present moment determined it. I shouldn't just hang all the freaks and geeks posters like I normally would do. But that's you. But the one thing I did do, because I, I don't know what to hang. I was on eBay and somehow I saw that some guy in Canada spent his whole life taking Polaroids with celebrities and having them sign the Polaroid. And in the pictures, it looks like a guy in his early 60s. And there were 140 of them. It's literally like him with the Smothers Brothers, and then the next one is Rudy Giuliani, and the next one is some Canadian star and Sean Cassidy. And I bought them, and I'm doing this six-foot-by-six-foot frame of this man who I don't know and all of his photos with celebrities. That's just a conversation piece. So maybe that's the way I'll do it. 
yes. Oh, I, I, I think it's the coolest thing ever. But when I tell my family that, they give me a look which shows they don't think that's cool. Really? So Maude and Iris and, and Leslie, they don't get autographs. They don't care about that stuff. When you go onto a set, by the way, do you when you work with somebody that you were enamored by or someone you really loved, and I don't know if you feel that way now. I don't know if you get enamored because you've worked with a lot of great people, but do you get you still get a little starstruck? Do you still like, I got to get this signed eventually? Or, I, or you don't think like that? I certainly do. I guess it's less people because I feel like as I get older, I feel like we're all trying to do the same thing. So the person that you might have been in awe of when you were young, when you get older like me, you know he's in the same hell as me trying to write the new album or not screw up the new movie. Right. And you don't feel like they're in another place. You feel like, oh, that's an artistic person trying not to make shit. (laughs) <laughs> yeah and so whatever whoever it is it's mick jagger he's like how do i make it another record people will pay attention to right but every once in a while there'll be someone that really gets you like i was just talking to somebody about eminem who was in this is 40 oh. and that's the kind of person that i get scared around really one because i'm just so in awe of what he's done and I'm not in that world. You so have I'm nothing not, in common, you feel. I, I mean, I probably do have things in common, but just on the surface, my like childlike anxiety, I feel uh, intimidated. And, and also just whatever, the attitude of, of rap. And, you know, there's a, it's so different than comedy because it's built on bravado and we're right. built on like being proud to be terrified yes like our insecurities Fuck. so it's just a different stance yeah. but then he was riotously funny and improvising really? and and was a, a huge fan of super bad said he watched it a zillion times could literally recite the movie beginning to end does that just make you feel awesome when oh, you hear yeah. that from these guys. Oh, yeah. Just the idea of him sitting in his house watching super bad 30, 40 times <laughs> laughing. You know, you, you also yeah. think how happy is that guy made me the fact that at some point he's in his house cracking up at Seth and and Jonah and Bill Hader and Emma and everybody and Martha in super bad. Right. You know, that's the greatest feeling ever. Yeah. Do, yeah. I can't like I, the first thing I thought of when I was going to talk to you was like, and we met doing stand up. I know mm-hmm. you do stand up a lot. You've been yeah. doing stand up your whole life, which we can get into, but. You're the first person that's given me a homework for the interview. You gave me a lot of stuff, which was now listen, this was a lot, but it was great. Like I, I had the time and no one <laughs> has seen any of this, which is the the funny part, because I realized that I was very productive during the pandemic. And I didn't know what that said about me that during this crisis, I just went straight to work. So I finished my book, Sicker in the Head, which is another book of interviews with comedy people. Right. And some, you know, Jeff Tweedy's in it too and Gail King, but it's mainly like Sasha Baron Cohen and Nathan Fielder and Hannah Gatsby and and everybody. Yeah. And so I I was like, everyone's home. They have <laughs> to say yes. Timing. They can't say no. I know they're home <laughs> they and I know they're going on. <laughs> yeah. And they're all vulnerable and in right. a place where they're thinking about things. I'm sure you found that during uh your podcast that people are just much more reflective than they were sure and then i had been working on this george carlin documentary i started it right before the pandemic awesome i let me tell you i i didn't really i hate i'm embarrassed to say but i really it's not that i wasn't a big george carlin fan i just wasn't educated on him and this boy is this an education of george carlin the influence he had 
who he was, the hardships he went through when he hit rock bottom, and like other comedians were sort of making fun of him at a certain time. You know, when he was doing blow and his wife was an alcoholic and his daughter stuck in the middle of all of this shit. I was like, this is intense as hell. And I really learned a lot. I love this documentary. When, is, when does it come out? Uh, it's going to come out mid to late May. And I'm really proud of it. In the beginning, I thought, I don't know how we could do something as good as the Gary Shandling documentary because Gary was so open about his feelings. He really expressed himself right. in every situation. He just he was just cutting a vein everywhere. That's what he was looking for. He was looking for the answers, right? Yeah, and he wanted to tell you what he was feeling and he wanted to go deep and he wanted to talk about going deep. So when you would look up interviews that he did with people like Kevin Smith or Mark Maron, it was all there. I mean, there was a great line Gary had in one of the interviews, I think it was with Mark Maron. It might have been Kevin Smith. He said, life is short, but not short enough. <laughs> and so there was all this stuff. And I thought, well, George Carlin never told us anything about himself. Was it just the period? Was it the sense of like just the time period that he sort of grew up in? And Probably. I mean, it was an era where we didn't know that much about Alan King's life right. and people from that era. Yeah. And his act, none of it was personal. Zero. He didn't tell you about his wife and his daughter. And he, he, it was all in his mind and his observations of people and life. But it wasn't an observation of his behavior. Right. And then when he did interviews, he, he rarely went deep about any of it. But then we found that he was working on his autobiography uh, with Tony Hendra, uh, who played the manager in Spinal Tap, who was a... <laughs> writer and he passed away i believe this year and he talked to tony for this book for 23 hours and we found these tapes and you listen to when you make a documentary how much harder is it to make a documentary than actually making a film because you have a script you follow the script you you know but with a documentary it's sort of like the research that goes into it to find all these things and then piece them together and make it somewhat linear Mm -hmm. How long do you have a team of people helping you out with this? Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's a lot of work to, to just listen to his 14 HBO specials. You listen to every special. I mean, I can't say I listen to every second of every special. I, I usually use my team to go, let's prioritize. There's a lot of stuff that isn't as good as the best stuff. Right. And so we don't have to, you know, get, super deep on the things that weren't working but it becomes clear that if there's 14 hours of stuff maybe there's four incredible hours that we have to really pay attention to right. and our editor joe beshenkovsky who did the shanling doc and the kurt cobain doc and he did belushi he's incredible he remembers everything he literally remembers everything if he watches a special it's just seems to be all in his mind and he's a real artist and a big part of our process. And my partner, Michael Bonfiglio, who uh, who I also did a 30 for 30 about Dwight Gooden and Daryl Strawberry. Dude, I got to get into that. I mean, that's, yeah. that was fucking phenomenal. And I know you're a big Met fan. Yes. You're from Flushing. I'm, well, I was born in Flushing. Flushing. That's true. I, I was born in Long Island. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I know what it's like to feel like a loser because I'm a, a Rangers <laughs> fan. I'm a Mets fan. I'm a Knicks fan. I'm a Giants fan. Giants have had some success. Give me the lineup, 86 lineup in the World Series for the Mets. Can you do it? It's so funny because I just watched <laughs> that, uh, the documentary about the Mets. Uh, it's awesome. Six-parter or some shit. Yeah, it was yeah. fantastic. Uh, so let's see. I'll, let's see who I can remember. 
All right. Who was the Wally lead Backman, Lenny Dykstra. These are right. Dykstra led yeah. it off. Then Backman. I, I mean, I, I don't know if I could say it all in order. Kevin Mitchell. Oh, yes. Uh, uh, Keith Hernandez. Nice. Let's see how, how, how deep I can go. I have a terrible memory. That's the other thing. Really? Other thing. I have a pretty bad memory. Like, I just thought, oh, my God, you're going to. You're going to forget Ron Darling. Oh, yes. Jesse Orozco. Yes. Uh, you know what I did? I was I was watching that documentary, and I went online, and I don't know if it was connected to the documentary as a, like an extra on ESPN. It might have been that they had one of the games from the World Series, and I watched a bunch of the game, and it was Bob Costas doing the game. And it was interesting how slow it was and how – Baseball and television, they they hadn't decided to try to find ways to amp it up. And there's a commercial on the screen during the game and music and energy. And it was really fun and relaxing to just so relaxing. listen to the, the commentators. And it was a completely different vibe. I just remember Joe Garagiola yeah. and Vince Scully and they're announcing a game and just like, it's so chill. And it's like. You know, and the big question will be, whatever happened to oil can Boyd? High drive in a right field. <laughs> yeah. Henderson goes back, and it's gone. And if you're a young Daryl Strawberry, I mean, I just remember these moments like that. Sure. I mean, so you're a Mets fan. I love yeah. that. I love Doc and Daryl. That was fantastic. Did you get to hang out with them a lot? Mike, uh, my partner, you know, did all the interviews. My, you know, my role, I feel, in a lot of these documentaries is to really locate the heart of it uh, you know i i look at it as a storyteller for instance in that documentary we we slowly realized that doc was still struggling mm. and it was very difficult to figure out the edit because we thought we were making a documentary about two people who had triumphed over their addictions and he was still dealing with the addiction slowly we were like i think that's not what this is and then i wasn't sure what the ethics were of discussing that in any way. And I didn't want to make a documentary outing someone that was trying to be secret about the fact that they still have Especially when they think your motive is to be talking about how they overcame, yes. right, this shit. And now it's like, yeah, you, that that's very, that's a tough thing yeah, to do. Yeah, I'm not trying to make them look bad. Right. But at the same time, as soon as we started, we have to be honest about what we're seeing. And I think we made some artful choices to indicate what was happening. Right. Let so, the audience kind of see what's going on as opposed to stuffing it down their yeah. throat. And just be careful about what we were saying when, so you could do the math to see that this is a, a struggle that lasts your entire life. And, and you know, maybe Daryl hasn't fallen off the wagon, but he owns rehabs. So in order to stay sober, he has to literally own rehabs. So that's how often he has to, reinforce these messages and and doc obviously he's fallen on and off the wagon he got arrested after the movie was made yeah. and struggles and you know i certainly pray that he can overcome all of that yeah uh, but it was it was interesting to try to look at these two men who had a similar experience they they were very very young and the city looked to them to change everything yeah and then they did but they were too young to handle New York City and cocaine and partying in the 80s, which was the 80s at its worst. And it ate them up. 
and they were i think they were very brave to you know to talk about it and there's some interesting material in the 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 new mets documentary which everyone should see i wish you would make a movie about the 86 mets about those plane those flights those yes. there's whole books about those i mean flights. i know but wouldn't that be a fascinating movie yeah well i think it's all even darker than we think it got it's almost like unacceptable right now to even bring some of the shit that they were i doing think out. so I, th I think yeah. and like a lot of businesses there are things happening that are even beyond right that when you dig deeper uh there's there's behavior you know that is uh you know well I I, I I don't want to use the word criminal, but, but you know, well, there's a I lot mean, of bad things happening. Yes. You know, that it's not even about today. You know, it's just how people treated each other, how they treated women. Right. And different time period, not to say it was right and it wasn't, but it was a different. Well, a different time period in the sense that I don't think society had said no fucking way. We're not doing any of this. Right. And so something about the culture was a party, Studio 54. Society hadn't put their foot down. No, I mean, and I think all. that, you know, certainly the world of athletes uh, is not a world that is about respecting women and their boundaries and understanding consent and things like that. Right. It is a world of people partying hard, getting each other wasted and everything that flows from that. Right. You know, which is generally not good. Inside of You is brought to you by Rocket Money. I love Rocket Money. You know why? Because everyone should have Rocket Money because it just helps you save money. How many times do we have subscriptions that we don't even know we have anymore and we're paying so much money? It's just throwing away money, Ryan. I, I found one. You And you did it. You told I me. I got Rocket Money. <laughs> okay, I found one. It. I'm embarrassed to say how long it's been going on, but thank you for finding it. <laughs> My God. It was embarrassing. <laughs> yeah, because it's like you want to watch some show and you go, oh, I have to subscribe to this uh, this streaming, uh, whatever. Mm -hmm. And you, you start streaming the show, you watch it, you leave, and you forget after this trial period it kicks in and it's they're charging terrible. you 10 bucks a month. It's, it is embarrassing. Ugh. You know, 75% of people have subscriptions they've forgotten about. Before I started using Rocket Money, I thought I had, you know, like, oh, I have like five subscriptions. I could not believe it when they showed me I was paying for like four extra uh, between, you know, streaming advices and fitness apps, delivery services. It's never ending. And thanks to Rocket Money, I'm no longer wasting money on the ones I forgot about. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lowering your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with the customer service for you. I don't like that. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash inside. That's rocketmoney.com slash inside. Rocketmoney.com slash inside. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I don't know how many times I have to talk about this, but it's so important. If you're sitting there right now and you're stressed or you're anxious or you have a lot on your mind and you just bottle it up and you don't know what to do, it's going to come out and it's not going to come out in 
great ways all the time. Um, BetterHelp has helped me substantially. Ryan here has been using it for a while. And, I, you know, don't you notice when you don't use BetterHelp? When you don't have therapy, oh, the weeks where I miss a session, of course, yeah, yeah, it's just it's 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 like the more you talk about something, even if you don't think you have anything to talk about, things come up, and it puts your mind at ease. And we all carry around different stressors, you know, big and small, and at times we keep carrying them around rather than processing them and letting them go. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. Therapy from BetterHelp is helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself. It isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. It's for all of us. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. I think people think, oh, what if I don't like my therapist? If you don't, you switch them. It's that easy. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com inside today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash inside inside of you is brought to you by neurohacker qualia senolytic let me tell you something if you haven't tried this you are missing out i just sent this to my mom i have it i use it it's a product that i didn't I, they weren't even my sponsor when i was using this and i was like wow why do i have more focus or energy why do i feel better why do i feel different it's because i take Qualia Synalytic, Neurohacker. Look, if someone would have told me, Ryan, that there are science-backed ingredients that could help me feel 15 years younger in a matter of months, I wouldn't have believed it. But uh, I tried Qualia Synalytic, and the rest is history. As we age, everyone accumulates senescent cells in their body. Senescent cells may cause symptoms of aging, such as aches and discomfort, slow workout recoveries, sluggish mental and physical energy associated with that middle-aged feeling. Also known as zombie cells, they're old and worn out and not serving a useful function for our health anymore, but they could be taking up space and nutrients from our healthy cells. Much like pruning the yellowing and dead leaves off a plant, Qualia Senolytic helps remove those worn out senescent cells to allow for the rest of them to thrive in the body. And... You just take it two days a month. The formula is non-GMO, vegan, gluten-free, and the ingredients are meant to complement one another, factoring in the combined effect of all the ingredients together. And Neurohacker Quiasenolytic has a 100-day money-back guarantee. Oh, I have, I have more energy. Uh, I feel younger. Uh, I'm more productive. I will tell you that. I'm more productive. And uh, I feel like I have, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm more enthusiastic about my life. I definitely feel that, and uh, for me, the aches and pains are less lessened by this, so that is a real important thing for me. Help resist aging at the cellular level, folks. Try Qualia Senolytic. Go to neurohacker.com slash inside. Neurohacker, N-E-U-R-O-H-A-C-K-E-R. Neurohacker.com slash inside for up to $100 off and use code inside at checkout for an additional 15% off. That's neurohacker.com slash inside for an extra 15% off your purchase. How do you, how do you do it? I mean, 
you, you don't stop working. It's like when I was getting all this stuff, I was like, how does he have the, he's got two kids. He's married. He's got this movie, the bubble coming out. He's got a documentary come out. He wrote a new book. He's got all this shit. I'm like, you're like, what do you, how do you do it? How do you balance this without getting divorced? And how do you, are you a workaholic? Would you honestly say you have to constantly be working or you'll be miserable? It's hard to know because I just went away uh, with Leslie for nine days to Hawaii, and I always felt pretty good in the shutdown. You didn't work? Not much. I mean, I had to make some calls, <laughs> but I wasn't, you know, pounding it there. I, I I shut it down. And and sometimes there's, you know, a summer where we're mainly in shutdown, and I certainly can handle it. But I think that's the thing I'm always trying to decide, you know, am I working for a healthy reason? Am I just trying to keep myself busy and distracted? Am I passionate about what I'm doing? You know, what, what is the actual motivation for work? Right. You know, I, you know, I've done a bunch of things. Do I need to do another one here like this? Right. Or am I just kind of on a treadmill where things come up and you're busy and you haven't really thought through if you want to give your time to it? Does Leslie make you aware sometimes of it? Like, hum, hello. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I think that, you know, the rhythm of her career is also different than the rhythm of a producer's career and a writer's career. So actors have to be ready when called into action. Right, right. And so, and and there's periods between it, which, which can be long. <clears throat> and then you go and you're 100% committed to making that movie and creating that character. And then you go home and you you rest and you wait and you can, you know, take a hunk of time to recharge. Where for me, everything is you know, a long multi-year process. So we're working on Billy Eichner's movie, which comes out in the fall. You know, we've been working on that movie for five years. When you say working on for five years, is it sort of intermittent, like, you know, notes every like every couple months, you're like, oh, we got to go back to that? Because I know that you probably have a lot of plates spinning. So is yeah. it one of these things that every couple of months you have to kind of answer these? It's like, when is it? How long before it comes into fruition? Well, you know, it's meetings and discussions of the outline for a long time. And then suddenly Billy and Nick Stoller, who wrote it with him and directed, you know, do a pass. So you're waiting. Like for me, it's different than them. They're working a lot of that time. And I'm waiting to be fresh eyes and give a good read and have discussions about what's working. And then it becomes, all right, well, how are we going to make this? How much money do we need to make this? How long would it take? Who should be in it? How would you market it? Yeah. And then that's years of that, those conversations. And that's true. You might have eight of these going at the same time. Right. And you don't know if they're going to go. And sometimes you work on it for half a decade. And then suddenly everyone says, we don't want to make it. And you, you, how often does that happen? More than you think. I mean, it happens, you know, for sure. And how personal do you take that? Depends on the project. Sometimes, you know, it's very personal because you're really ready to go. And maybe the last second, the whole thing crumbles. And it's like a runner stumbling. And what causes that usually for something Sometimes just last minute? to casting do. Dro drops out and then you can't crack the perfect chemistry casting again. Because I'm all about that. If, I, if, if that doesn't <clears throat> feel right, I always think there's no reason to go. I'll never push something forward if I don't think all that is a home run. Right. And sometimes people just say, oh, people don't want a movie like that anymore. Oh, that movie's too weird. Yeah, we just put out a weird movie, and uh, we don't think people like weird movies. And suddenly you're like, wait, I got four of these. <laughs> oh, fuck. <laughs> that are kind of eccentric, and they're right. not, you know, a generic type of movie. 
Right. But it, it definitely does happen. And you have to spin the plates because I remember early in my career, I spent like three or four years on one script because I thought that's what you do. What script was that? I wrote a script with Owen Wilson and it was right after Bottle Rocket. Which I love. And a uh, cable guy. Lo- I love Bottle, Bottle Rocket. Rocket. Just genius. And we, we wrote this script uh, about a man who got in a drunk driving accident but wasn't an alcoholic and his sponsor at AA where he was forced to go by the courts was Rip Torn. And it was awesome. Rip Torn convincing him that he was an alcoholic, even though he wasn't. And this strange friendship between them. And I worked on it for years. And, and just right when I was ready to go, it was, nope, we don't want to do it. And it never happened. And it never happened. How often do they never come back? How, or how often do they come back? Like projects that you are, they say, no, we're not doing this. How often? Because you hear these things like kickball, dodgeball. Mm-hmm. dodgeball and it, it took 12 years and the studio didn't want to do it and they didn't want to do it and finally after 12 years that seems like it rarely rarely happens where when something's turned down it hangs in there and comes back i mean we've had that a fair amount of time super bad took forever i mean super bad was floating around when we were doing freaks and geeks wow and we made it in 2006 or around six or seven uh and they had been working on it since they were like 13 years old. I mean, Jesus. this was the, their Seth and Evan's dream was, was this movie. And everyone said no forever. And then other movies started succeeding, like Talladega Nights and things that I was working on. And then people said, what, what else do you have? And so we had a trunk of rejected projects. The other one was Pineapple Express, which was only written because we couldn't believe anyone there was no one to make super bad and so we were like what's more commercial than super bad oh we could do like a stoner action movie like what if jerry bruckheimer made a stoner movie Perfect. a stoner action movie and then we sent that around and everyone was like no we don't like that either <laughs> and then Jesus. when super bad did well they were like okay we'll do pineapple after that so So once you've proven yourself or once you see that there's success in this they go oh we believe in this filmmaker we believe in this team we'll give them this other one yeah we get seth and evan's sense of humor and their style and we see what what seth is doing on screen and suddenly it gets a little bit easier Uh, and but we've had things get delayed like you don't mess with the zohan so Adam says to me, Adam Sandler, do you want to write this movie with Robert Smigel about a hairdresser, who, a, Mossad, a Mossad agent in Israel who wants to move to America and retire and be a hairdresser? <laughs> and so I worked on that with Robert Smigel, who's the best comedy writer in the world. So we, we had a script we really liked in like 2000, around that time. And then 9-11 happens. And we were like, oh, I guess you can't do that now. Like everything about what we're satirizing is much more heated. Right. I think we we put it in a trunk before 9-11 when there was the Intifada a year or two before that. And then every once in a while, we would take a run at, could you rewrite it? I thought after 9-11, there was a way to do the movie about a cell, a terrorist cell. And I, I, I was saying, you know, can't we do it about 
Like Rob Schneider is in a terrorist cell and he slowly falls in love with America. And then in the end, he doesn't want to do it. And then he teams up with Adam. And then that didn't happen. Right. And and probably shouldn't have. Uh, <laughs> and then one day Sandler just called me and just said, we're going to do, you don't mess with the Zohan. And that was 10 years later. 10 years later. And Smigel rewrote it and got it ready to go. And it was a big hit and hit a window where people were willing to laugh about conflict. Because it really was a satire of the ridiculousness of people fighting and not understanding each other, not caring about each other. I mean, it's a very silly right. movie, but that was the idea that you could do a really goofy movie that at its heart was about that it's ridiculous, that this that it's just an endless cycle of, of violence. We, obviously, we weren't getting into any real issues right. of the Middle East, but somehow it happened at a time when it had quieted down enough where people really enjoyed the movie. Yeah. Do you miss... Any project from yesteryear, like over the years, all these projects you have, is there one that you're just like, got to make that someday, got to make that someday? And and also, are there most of those projects that you're like, eh, I can see why I think it made. I don't, I'm never going back there. I'm trying to think what's sit, you know, sitting around. There's not too many sitting around. I wrote a movie for Will Ferrell and Jack Black like 20 years ago that was called Demon Streets. And it was about two <laughs> motorcycle cops. Awesome. And it was all based on the the like the Tupac and Biggie murders. Uh, like them caught up in the middle of a similar situation. Right. And that didn't go. And that's that's one that I think, oh, if I had the energy you still to sit down. Kind of like, eh. I, I want to see Will and Jack on motorcycles. <laughs> yeah, who doesn't? <laughs> that would be fantastic. Um, what were you like growing up? I know that you know you were twelve years old when your parents split, right? Uh, yeah, but like fourteen. Fourteen like that. was that difficult for you? I was like the defining, you know, trauma, uh, you know, for me, because you know when you're a little kid, and and the only thing you have in life is is these two people getting along, and you listen to them, and you're looking for wisdom from them. But when they're at full war with each other, and back then, parents didn't go, hey, we're getting div divorced, but let's go to therapy to figure out the best ways to not make it hard <laughs> on the kids. They just, you know. Fuck off. They just battled yeah. in front of you. Like in front oh, of oh, you. Oh, yeah, I know. I, mean, I know these things. I mean, this was a time when they didn't even think, let's not do this in front of the kids. I don't think I ever heard the phrase, let's not do this in front of the kids. That's funny because my parents, my dad said, I wanted you guys to get through high school and college before we, I did it for you. I'm like, well, why the fuck did, I wish you wouldn't have. You guys were fucking horrible. Yeah. So you they got divorced I mean? after you left yeah, the house. Yeah, I was 26, 27. And I was like, or around there. And I was like, God, I wish you would have got divorced way earlier than yeah. that. It was terrible. It was, you know, yeah. I think so, someone said once, it's better to uh, to to be f from a broken home than to grow up in a broken home. Something like that. Does That's that make pretty. Sense? It makes absolute sense. But so that that I think mentally was was hard for me because I felt like they're 
they're making a lot of mistakes. And now I don't know what I should believe of what they tell me to do with my life. Mm. Because I see they're not making good decisions and how they're treating each other. Yeah. And that's the thing that threw me. And also they they fought for a decade. It, it wasn't a rough three months. It just went fully into my adulthood. It wasn't a wound that resolved itself. Right. And so it just kept going and going and through college and going and going. And that certainly motivated me to want to get my shit together and know how to make a living and know how to take care of myself Yeah, because I felt like, oh, I need to be on my shit. Did it also help you focus on, God, I have to go out with healthy women. <laughs> I have to, I want to be in something healthy. Or did it sort of deter you away from dating for a while or just hooking up with girls maybe at a certain age and just enjoying yourself and going, I'm not getting married after what I've seen. I didn't really think about it in those terms. I just thought there's a better way to do it than that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I understand more about it now, you know, when I got older and I could talk to my parents about it. And I talked to my mom a little bit about it before she passed and, it was easier for me to understand them. And now that I'm older than they were when that was happening, I have more of a sense of what went wrong and also what went wrong and how they were taught to relate to, to their spouses in the marriage and that they didn't learn from their parents how to communicate and how to it was do a domino right. effect. Yeah. I mean, you know, people who were just a generation fresh to the United States they they didn't know the psychology of communication and how to talk to each other and how to how to address difficult things with each other. So it would just erupt because there's no language for how to listen. I I, I mean it's like we know what deep listening is and and you know we I my whole world is self help books, but they didn't really you have read a that. lot of self help books. Oh, constantly. But when I was a kid, I remember my dad got this book called Your Erogenous Zones by, was it by like Wayne Dyer. And it was the first self-help book ever in the house. And then they got divorced. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. I remember my dad said to me once that he went to therapy with my mom. And the therapist was just hard on my mom. Just whatever. You went to a therapist. And in that session, the one time they went, he was hard on my mom. And my mom was like, we're not doing that again. And sometimes it's as simple as that, right? You get the shitty therapist oh, yeah. who doesn't know how to manage the, the moment and it shuts off the idea of self-exploration. And later in life, I pushed my mom to go to a therapist. She was being you know, really you know, manic and neurotic and hard to deal with. And I finally got her to go. Then she came back and I said, how was it? And she said, he told me I was right about everything. <laughs> <laughs> that's what i wanted the best therapist ever he exactly just, yeah uh you, you, your mom's working in a in a comedy store and you started doing yeah. comedy what is she doing there first of all well what happened was my mom moved out and so we were in sasset and and she moved to southampton and they owned a restaurant together and one of the bartenders was this guy rick messina I know Rick Messina. Does he still have the wiffle ball stadium yes. in the back of his house? Yes, and he, he built a wiffle ball stadium <laughs> in his backyard. There. Strawberry Fields. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so he was the bartender at the restaurant they owned. 
And so when she was divorced, she didn't have any money. So she started waiting tables and selling ads at radio for radio stations. And this was an upper middle class woman who just wanted to play tennis and raise her kids all day. And now she's, you know, blue collar in the workforce. Right. And he would run a comedy club out of this hotel, the Southampton Inn in the summers. And he hired her to be the hostess. And so looking back, and I've said this before, I always thought, what did he pay her? What do you pay someone in 1984, 83 to seat people at a comedy club? Not a lot. I mean, minimum wage then was three thirty-five. I remember. So what, what, what could she have made? And then I thought, well, on some level, I would assume she just did it for me because she would want me to see it. Really? Because I was such a comedy freak. And she never indicated that ever. And, I, and on some level, it was a humiliation to her to work for her bartender. You know, she was like someone that her, her grand her father was a big record producer, produced Janis Joplin, and they, she came from a lot of money. And now she's seating people at a comedy club, all rich people, all the people that she would be embarrassed to have that job in front of, because my mom is very materialistic. And very aware of that Mine stuff. Too, yeah. And I love that she had those kind of jobs. I just thought it was cool. Like, oh, my mom's a waitress at this diner. That's amazing. Yeah. But to her, it was terrible. And I think on some level, she must have thought, this or maybe psychically this felt there's a reason to do this. Because it's where I met all the comedians and how I started interviewing comedians. Rick gave me a job as a dishwasher at Eastside Comedy Club in Huntington. And everything flew... Uh, came out of my mom taking that job as a hostess at this comedy If she club. didn't take a job as a hostess in a comedy store, you think your career would have been completely different? A, a thousand percent, because I, you know, I started working as a dishwasher, then a busboy, and I would watch the comedians. I used to watch Eddie Murphy and Rosie O'Donnell in like 1983, 84. Wow. And that's how I made some connections that paid off later in life. And it was where I first did stand-up in high school was at Eastside Comedy Club. Jackie Martling used to always come into there, and it was like Bob Nelson and Rob Bartlett and all the, the Long Island legends. And that gave me the courage to interview comedians because I had met them. So I thought, oh, I would love to interview them. So I interviewed them for my high school radio station. And that's when I was able to say, how do you do it? How do you get on stage? How do you write jokes? What's this going to take? Because really, that's why I interviewed people initially. To figure things out. Just to figure things out and to, to make them real. Because, you know, you see Hal Linden on TV. He's like a magical figure. Yeah. Right? And then when, when you get in the room with people, you think, oh, this is possible. You're a person. Oh, Jerry Seinfeld in 83, 84. He's from Long Island. Oh, you're kind of like me. So it's not crazy that I would dream that I could do this. Do you remember the first time you went on stage, that very first time? Well, my dad was great. He used to drive me to these clubs, Chuckles in Mineola. <laughs> Chuckles. And, and Governors in Levittown, which is a great club, which is still there. Levittown, wow. And he would drive me and drop me off and pick me up a few hours later. And they were both very supportive. My mom and dad, although they had issues with each other, both always said you could do it and believed 100%. And that was the, the main reason why I think I had So they always believed the in you. They not for a second thought it 
that there was a chance I would fail. Were they loving? Were they like, I love you, whatever you do, yeah. I'll be happy. They were like that. Yes, 100%. And so that was never a question. Like, there was no shame of this is a dumb profession. Right. They knew I loved it and they were excited for me to try to jump into it. And so I would go to all those clubs as an open micer in high school. And that, that's how I started And did you really it. enjoy it? Did, were you enjoying it or were you nervous, nervous wreck to begin with? Oh, you started to- The diarrhea, the diarrhea. Dude, what is that? I, when I started <laughs> doing it, I just, I, I would have diarrhea. I wouldn't understand it. It would be like explosive diarrhea every time I, before I would go up. Yeah, I would just fall apart, so Exhausted, scared. feel like shit. You're and I was so terrible at it. Were you? I mean, I was so bad when I started. When I think about things I did on stage- I'm like your worst fringe freak at an open mic night who's terrible. <laughs> but I just kept doing it and I I learned that it would take a while to figure it out. That's what comedians told me, that it takes a while to figure out who you are. So in my head, every time I bombed, I thought, oh, I'm on the path. It's good that I'm bombing because I am learning how to do this by bombing. And I had a pretty healthy patience about just getting through this early So you were comfortable stage. at some point just bombing. You were used to it. I wasn't comfortable. I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> but I was willing to do it. Right. And I thought, well, I'm 17 years old. If it takes me eight years to be a worldwide megastar. So be it. Uh, I, and I'm 25. So I had this psychotic feeling like it'll work out. Like it actually didn't work out. But I mean, I did get good enough to, to start traveling and right. being a normal comedian. You, you go to USC, we're fast forwarding. I, this, the whole thing is not going to be that linear, but I don't care. Um, but you go to USC, you, you, you have a, you're part of a writing program and you drop out after two years. What was the reason why you dropped out? We didn't have enough money to pay tuition. That's what it was. It was the main thing, which is no one had the money to pay cool. for it. Yeah. But it's funny because you look back and you go, it is an expensive school. How much was it? The tuition was six grand semester in 1985 86 and it literally was impossible for me to get six grand there was just no way to get it and i got exhausted trying to figure that out and push everybody for the money and everyone was having real serious financial problems at that time right and so i was a little bit half-assed at school because i thought i'm not going to finish this program and you liked it i liked it at the beginning and then i think i started getting bummed out that it was clear that I, I couldn't do it. I couldn't afford the film and the camera rentals and it it, it just wasn't going to work. And right. then I think I lost some interest in it. And I was getting more interested in stand-up. So you know, when I left, my family wasn't like, oh man, no, let's, we, we got to figure out how to get that money. They were like, great, what are you going to do now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I had been doing some stand-up at college and booking shows at USC when I was there. But I did learn how to write. I had a, one class with Sid Field, the guy who wrote, you know, the screenwriting book that everybody reads. And later, when I had friends who started getting opportunities, I realized, oh, I think I know how to write screenplays. It's like that scene in Taxi where out of the blue, Reverend Jim starts playing the piano and he plays the most amazing classical piece. And then he stops and he goes, I guess I took lessons. <laughs> that's how i felt when like suddenly oh. friends needed writers <laughs> another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check 
Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. Wow. What was it like? I mean, you've, you've said it before, like you were roommates with Sandler, but everybody wants to know at least a story. What was he like living with at that young age? Was he like, John, do the fucking dishes. <laughs> no, it, was wasn't, it wasn't like that. Adam, Adam always had a rental car and he never, ever cleaned it. He would just return it when it was filled almost to the roof with fast food like garbage <laughs> that was like a really weird thing that he did he just he wouldn't wash it and it would, he, it would trash it return it get a fresh one <laughs> for years he, he did that i mean at that time and i think it's a lot different than now comedy was much smaller there was no internet and you felt like the whole comedy business was about 100 people and there were certain people you would meet and you would think, I think that person's going to be a gigantic star. Even when they weren't near it at all, you felt the bubbling up of certain people like Adam and you felt that Jim Carrey. Living yeah. with him, you were like, this, there's something about this guy. Everyone around Adam was like, Adam's, Adam's the next Eddie Murphy. You just knew it even when he was bombing. It wasn't like he was killing on stage and you thought that as a result of the success of his performances. Right. We found him hilarious. The crowds was hit and miss, but there was a certain charisma, which is the charisma which led to everything that happened that you felt when he was in his early 20s. If anything, hotter because he had so much energy as a friend to make you laugh because he wasn't making movies. So all that energy that he's put into his career in the early days was just used on you at dinner <laughs> because he was so funny and he didn't have an outlet. What would he say to you? What would he do? He just was a, at that time a very, you know, gregarious, loud, hilarious person. Right. He loved to make everybody in our group laugh. And I think when you become super famous, that quiets down a bit because in a way the world is paying attention to you. Right. But when no one knows who you are, no one's paying attention to you, it's more fun to make a spectacle out of yourself. It's a, there's a freedom too, isn't there? Yeah, and it, and you still have the knucklehead energy that we all had of college, right? And you've just brought it into the into the real world. So he was just making us laugh as friends a ton, and then you know he would do you know phony phone calls all the time because I I really felt like it was he didn't know what to do with this energy, and he would just you know, called Jerry's Deli and complained about 
a turkey sandwich that made him sick and really put them through it for like 15 minutes of negotiations about can he have a free sandwich and what kind of sandwich can the free one be? Does it have to be the same sandwich as the one that made me sick? I had the turkey, but maybe I'll have roast beef this time. And I was aware that this was something special. I started recording it because as a comedy fan, I'm like, I'm aware that no one's this funny, that I'm not just like with some guy, that this is world-class funny. This is, the people that I love, like Michael Keaton and Seinfeld, this is another another right. level, and I believe it's going to turn into something. And then it, then the weird thing is, you know, one day he says, "Hey, I just got Saturday Night Live," and then he's gone. Wow, that's incredible. You know, I look at all this shit—not shit, sorry—but you produced yeah. all the. I call it shit. You do? Yeah, sure. Good for you. Shit. It's your shit, man. Yeah. You produced Cable Guy, Anchorman, Talladega Nights, Superbad, Pineapple Express, Forgetting Sarah Marshall, Get Him to the Greek, Bridesmaids, The Big Sick. And first of all, I think, you know, you're 54 years old. Mm -hmm. You're five years older than me, and I feel like a complete <laughs> fucking failure <laughs> I with all the shit you've done. But I look 20 years older than you. No, you don't. If you shaved, you have gray hair. That's it. That's the only <laughs> fucking difference. But one thing, you know, people talk about is freaks and geeks. And just briefly, you know, I've read inter interviews where you talk about, I knew it was going to get canceled. I knew every week. Was that is that true? Did you really feel like from the get-go, oh yeah, this is gonna get canceled? And why? What was the studio's complaints? Why did you feel that this wasn't gonna make it? Well, we made it at a time when there was no head of NBC. So the head of programming left, and suddenly there was a more business-oriented guy who was above him who got to make all the decisions. And because he wasn't some programming guy who felt the need to ruin your process. He just loved the script and we said, hey, we want these people in it. And he went, great. Usually, as you know, the, the network will screw with your casting choices because it's the only place that they really can mess with your show. So when you go, I'd like this person to be the lead, they're like, bring me four choices. <laughs> yes. Which is the dumbest part of all of television is this moment where you debate the network. So if you create a show and you say, I want this person as the lead. If you lose that fight, you've already ruined your show. Your show is done. You you might as well not shoot it. It's it's all about that. And so we've had good and bad experiences with that. But in this experience, he just greenlit everything. We shoot the pilot. Uh, Jake Kasdan came in to direct it. We had Bill Pope as the cinematographer who, who did like The Matrix. Yeah. Just one of the greats of all time. And Paul Feig was just so tuned into what he wanted to do with that type of show. And then they hired a head of programming. And very quickly, someone just said, he doesn't like it. Just he, didn't get it. He doesn't get it. They said he went to private school. He, he, he's not feeling it. And so Jesus. from the very beginning, we knew we were in trouble. And, you know, you can see it in the time slot and the marketing and the fact that we would be on for a week and off for two weeks and back for two weeks and off for three weeks. So there was no rhythm to create a relationship with the audience. And we felt like our days were numbered. And then he took me out to lunch and he said, can your characters have more victories? Because it was a melancholy show about getting your ass kicked and, and the solace you take from your family and your friends when you're really having a hard time. And you say no, that's not what this show's about. Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, and I had to, and I, I was young enough to not know that that it's bad to be honest. <laughs> I didn't really know how to work those relationships. So yeah, yeah, yeah. And so 
the thing that I did to give him a victory was there was an episode where Bill is in gym class and there's a high pop that comes up to him and he catches it and he goes crazy celebrating. And then he doesn't realize that it's not the final out and everyone is scoring and tagging <laughs> up. You know, that was as close as a victory. Right. Uh, and so it did turbocharge the show because, you know, when you think you might get canceled at any second, you know, you use all your good ideas. Nothing saved for season two and three. Right. And so it became a, a bit compressed. Well, yeah. And you shot the finale. We shot the finale like three episodes before <laughs> the end of the season. Which is crazy. We didn't want it to end. Abruptly. On nothing. Unsettled, right. And so I remember Paul and I were in Las Vegas. That's hilarious. I flew to Vegas to see Rodney Dangerfield with Adam. And By the way, that's my favorite comedian of all time. Yeah. He, so he, yeah, he's the one that we, we, you know, we loved. I had seen him as a kid and, and we got to hang out with him. It was a magic night. But I bumped into Feig, who happened to also be in Vegas. And we were just talking about it. And we, uh, I was like, man, let's just do the final episode. He hadn't directed. I, I felt I felt bad, but he was the best writer on the show. It was such a vision for him. I didn't think that he could keep up with the writing if he was directing. And so I, I hadn't let him direct because I just felt that that was so important. Right. And so I said, just write and direct the last episode. And then we'll shoot it in the middle of the season. So if we get canceled, we'll have a finale. And in, in our conversations in Vegas, we were like, what would happen to Lindsay? And we thought, I think she'd become a deadhead. Like that seems <laughs> to be the middle between the right. burnouts and the mathletes would be the deadhead. And then Paul wrote and directed the most incredible finale. It's, it's really remarkable. Then I felt guilty that he hadn't directed more episodes, but I think the reason why the whole show is good is because uh, he hadn't. Do you do you see that not now, but retrospectively when you well when you were on set, you get canceled. Did how did you deal with that failure? Was it did it was it overwhelming? Because you don't deal. It seems like you don't deal with a lot of failure in your life. Maybe I'm wrong. I, I didn't handle any of that well because I really had this gut feeling that magic was happening while we were shooting it. It didn't matter if anyone was watching it. I just thought, I think this is great. And the idea that someone would just go, stop doing it. It felt like if you were a guitar player and someone walked up to you and said, I'm taking away your guitar and you're never getting another one for the rest of your life. That's what it felt like. Jesus. And I had the sense, this is, this doesn't happen, this combination of writers and actors and directors and crew. This is special. So the idea that someone would end it, you know, led to me just internalizing all this rage and, and you know, I got a herniated disc and I was on Vicodins and Jesus. in the editing room ranting and, and uh, it was just a terrible time. I remember I was like being really not nice to the editor. He, everything, but I'm also on Vicodin. Of course. Right. And I've been there. Uh, and I'm not being nice to him because he just keeps like something very simple. He just keeps doing wrong over and over and over again. Right. And I'm just like, man, what is wrong with you? What is wrong with you? Or just something like that. And he's like, my friend died yesterday. Oh man. And I was like, oh man. 
<laughs> that's, but what, seriously, though, what is wrong with you? <laughs> that's what, actually, and so you do kind of lose your mind in grief because as a child of divorce, the show was a family. And I couldn't really tolerate the randomness of the disillusion of the family. And I felt like we hadn't reached our potential creatively, that we were just getting going. And obviously a lot of the movies was an attempt, were an attempt to try to tap into all that was happening creatively with all of those different people right. on the show. You know, when you're doing, uh, when you're directing, I always wondered about this. Are you the kind of director that you get it as written, say it as written, and then you kind of let people improvise? Do you shout things out? What's your process on set like that? Yeah, I think that's about it. I try to write it as well as I can or have them write it as well as they can. Kelly Clarkson! <laughs> did you, did you yeah. do that? Like that was <laughs> Seth and Evan making a list of curses. So... <laughs> We know we're going to whack Steve. We have five cameras on it. We know we can do it once. We've explained to Romney and Seth and Paul Rudd the basic vibe of their reactions to it, although they did react differently than we had planned. And the whole thing was like a start and stop uh, improvisation. But one of the key aspects was that Steve would yell at the waxer. When I was a kid, I went to Action Park. I and remember in New York, the, did you see the documentary? Yeah. Incredible. And so those cars that would like ride these Alpine slide cars, everyone would always wipe out. They would skin, they would skin their elbows, like all the, you know, they would like fall out of the cart Terrible. and be on this like cement track. People with, died. <laughs> well, I think in other rides, other they rides. died doing that. I don't know if they died in that. But ride. we would all get really badly injured and go to the nurse. And when we got to the nurse, she would put a disinfectant on where the skin had been ripped off. And every person in New Jersey would have the same reaction. They would spray the disinfectant and then the person would be like, you motherfucker! <laughs> you know, at the nurse, the poor sweet lady. And every person would walk up like they weren't going to do it, and then they would do it. And so that was what was in my head, right. that he would explode at her in a way you wouldn't see coming. And so I said to Seth and Evan, just make a list of interesting curses. And then I said, make one column of clean ones so we have alternatives in case we need to show this on ABC one day, we can re-edit a clean version. And so then Seth walked up to me and there's a video of this uh, on YouTube. There's the making of the waxing scene. Right. And one of the things just said, Kelly Clarkson. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's a, it's a very open space. We want to get a good version of the scene. We want to throw lines at people. We want them to improvise. You know, we're, we're really open to anything happening. And, you know, sometimes the best joke in the scene is the the random thing that's just on a list that Seth and Evan hand you. Right. Do you ever get things that you just are like, this This like, this isn't working? It's just not working. I mean, it's oh, fine. Yeah. It's fine. I got to let it go. I got to move it on. We've worked on the scene. We've been improvising. It's not funny. There are definitely scenes where you think, well, I guess that's not one for the history books. <laughs> <laughs> and then you hope when you get into post- that you could fix it. And then every once in a while, you just have to put a joke in the back of someone's head in ADR where you just record a new joke. Right. You show the other actor. And 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 we have saved a thousand With scenes. those post-production jokes. Yeah. 
And I remember Wes and Owen talking about James Brooks forcing them to do that in Bottle Rocket. And if you watch Bottle Rocket, there's incredible jokes incredible. on the back of people's heads. Yeah. But, you know, a lot of that process I learned from Ben Stiller when we did the Ben Stiller show because he would do this agent character and he would interview people like Roseanne and Tom or run DMC. And it was him giving terrible advice. And it was all kind of insulting. Right. And what he would always do is tell them we were done shooting this, the sketch. And then after they left, he would shoot his single again and just say much meaner things. <laughs> <laughs> the things he was afraid to say to their face. Oh my God. And then we would just riff all these crazy runs when they weren't there right uh, do you laugh a lot are you constantly laughing or are you so in your head because you want it to be great you want it to be great that you don't you're not feeling the funny as much as everyone else is it, it depends certain things you, you are like that's funny okay that'll work let's move on uh and then other times you just start giggling i just made this movie called the bubble the bubble which when yeah. does that come out that's gonna come out uh, in the later in the spring and crazy this movie is insane folks yeah i laugh so hard there's so many it's so ridiculous and it's like right at the beginning of the pandemic and all these actors are at this hotel yeah and they're just all going crazy yeah it's like actors trying to make a dinosaur action movie in london during the early part of the pandemic having <laughs> nervous breakdowns and fred armison plays the director so he's supposed I to be the, the, the sundance winner who gets his first big budget movie and he doesn't know how to handle it right. and it's during the pandemic and Fred would make me laugh out loud. So there's so some hard. people that just make you laugh. Yeah. Maria Bamford plays. Right. Uh, there's a TikTok star who's been jammed into the mm -hmm. movie played by my daughter, Iris. And we, we did Zooms with Maria Bamford as her mother. So she's Zooming conversations with her mother. And Maria just gets me every, every time she's like, is Timothy Oily Fant in the movie? I love Timothy Oily Fant. <laughs> Timothy Oliphant. Uh, Seth Rogen, uh, is it true that you credit him with influencing you to make your work more outrageously dirty? Well, certainly Seth felt like comedy wasn't edgy enough for his taste. Right. So when we first started working together, uh, you know, in movies after Undeclared, where we couldn't be that edgy, we were, you know, desperately trying to get someone to pay attention to Superbad and not having a lot of success. One of the stories that always makes uh, Seth and I laugh is that there was this producer that we added to our team because we thought maybe it's us. Maybe if we had a more powerful producer, he could get us the money. So we, ha we have this producer join our team. And then suddenly he gets hired to be the head of Paramount. And we think... Well, now we'll make the movie. He's the head of Paramount. And the first thing he did as head of Paramount was to say no to the Jesus movie that he was the producer Christ. of. Um, but during the, the writing of The 40-Year-Old Virgin, you know, Seth was one of the producers on it. And he really thought it was funny to make Steve uncomfortable. So in his work uh, as the guy in the stock room with Steve, he went hard and dirty and uncomfortable and it made us laugh so hard to do that to Steve. And Steve, I think, as a comedy person, also isn't like a dirty comedian. Right. He's, you know, you don't he, think of him like that. He, you know, he's a smart, subtle, witty, brilliant guy, and he'll go there. But it really made Steve uncomfortable, and it, to the point where Steve wasn't sure where the line should be in the movie. And I think Seth was a big, you know, a big influence on right. a lot of you know that kind of 
you know, talking about a donkey show in Mexico type, <laughs> yeah. type, type joke runs. Right. You know, and that extended through, you know, other things like, you know, Superbad and Pineapple Express. I mean, he, he really wanted to put the pedal to the metal on some of the joke style. You take a lot of risks with, with newcomers. I say newcomers like Pete Davidson and uh, Amy Schumer, who hadn't a ton of, they didn't have a ton of acting experience. And so when you take on a role like that, like this is the lead role, we're doing King of Staten Island, how much work is that extra on you to get performances out of someone to, I mean, that's that seems like it's a, a difficult task you're setting yourself up for someone who hasn't really acted, or maybe they just naturally fall into place. Yeah. It's not really about the performances as much as the writing. The writing just takes a lot of work. It just takes. Why is that? What do you What do you mean? Because you know, when the movies work, they're usually very personal. Even if they're big comedies, the core idea of it is a personal idea to Amy or to Pete about relationships or about getting over trauma and grief. And so you're asking someone to really go there. These aren't like Ghostbusters type premises. Yeah, they're very personal, and so you have to develop with them over sometimes an extended period of time with amy it was it was kind of short because she wrote if you gave her notes she would hand you a new draft like five days later she really worked hard and and when we get to the set usually we've done auditions and we've done table reads and by the time we get there we know what we're doing the the hard work is in the conception of it I think Bill Burr is just genius in that movie too. Train or in uh, King's so Island. So he's good. such a good actor. He's such a. I love that guy. Yeah, he was in an episode of Crashing with Pete Holmes, and we were all blown away by his acting. I know. And I just thought, oh my god, there's so much more here with Bill, and he's not in a lot of movies where he's you know featured and given the space to create from his place. Right. And very early on, Pete was like, you got to get Bill Burr. You got to get Bill Burr. And we, we were so lucky. And then he, he was even 10 times better than we thought he might be. But again, the, like the core of that is very personal. Bill and Pete know each other. There's an intimacy there. Bill cares about Pete. And even though in the movie he's annoyed by Pete, you kind of feel underneath that there's some love there. Right. And so they have that chemistry that comes from life that we're able to tap into in the movie this is these are from my patrons i have a patreon account these yes. are rapid fire got you this you just answer them as quickly as you you would like to or i'll babble for 11 minutes on each you one. could do whatever the hell you want i know you're a busy <laughs> guy so i don't want to keep you too much i just love this i seldom am really just like excited yes. about something i could talk to you for hours and i'm not going to do that to you because i know you're busy so here we go shit talking with judd apatow nika what does your style of feedback to an actor sound like Usually I'm walking up and I'm nervous. So I have to hide the fact that I'm nervous about doing my job well. So it's usually enthusiasm coming through my stress about if I'm going to screw up the scene. So it might be like, uh, yeah, I think that's that's working. Maybe there's a thing that we could do where you... <laughs> that's, probably, that's probably the vibe. Of it. Yeah, I'm not like, ee! I'm just kind of like, I probably sound stressed. <laughs> So people are a little insecure, like, is this Judd happy? Well, no, more happy? like I'm praising, but also letting you know we're going to do a whole bunch of other things. But the key thing I do as a director is I let people know we're going to take our time. I think most people's acting diminishes because they don't know how many takes they're going to get. 
Right. And so you're like, God, I better nail it. Maybe I'm going to get two shots at this. I always tell the actors, we're going to be here until we like it. And tell me if you like it. Do you like what you did? Because uh, I'm feeling good now. And I feel like just saying that to people, they get way better. And all that stress that screws up their performance disappears if they know that you're going to give them time and that you're going to pay attention to if they're happy with it. Do you get actors that are just like, I don't want any more takes. Do we got it? Come on. What else do you want? I'm just ready to move on. I'm tired. I don't want to. Not too often, but I remember with Fred Armisen, he would just make me laugh. So I would make him riff for like 10 straight (laughs) minutes sometimes. And he never would give you a look like, okay, Judd, we got it. Never. Really? The first second looks exactly the same as 10 minutes in. Like if I didn't say cut and, and you had a digital card, a digital memory card that lasted an hour, he would never stop and it would all be at the same level. Were you ever nervous about giving an actor a uh, direction that was just kind of like, oh, he's going to snap at me? Or some guy who just like, isn't that fun to work with? You don't have to say any names. Well, but- Rip Torn was <laughs> terrifying because anything you said to him, he was gonna, going to knee-jerk know you. Right. So if you said, uh, uh, Rip, I think that uh, you might be a little more irritated here. I'm not irritated! <laughs> I know what's going on here. I don't need to be irritated. You know? And then what he would do is, you know, blow up at you. And then if you did like three more takes on the third one, he would suddenly take your note without talking about it. And so that I realized was the trick. He never wanted to say you were right, but then he would try it. Leanne, what surprised you the most about being a parent? Or what surprises you? About being a parent? I, you know, everything surprised me because... As you know from Knocked Up, we didn't know we were going to become parents. And so every what surprised me was that every single thing I knew about being a parent was from what I had seen in TV shows and in movies. And everything that was difficult about being a parent wasn't in TVs and TV and movies. Like none of it applied. <laughs> That's That was the thing that surprised me. Right. Did, does Iris and Maude, do you, are you happy they're in, going into acting? They're into acting. They're obviously doing a lot of stuff. Maude's on euphoria mm-hmm. right are you excited about this you like that she's kind of following your footsteps she's doing this i mean obviously you're not an actor but are you happy about that it's hard for me to judge it because as a kid i so wanted to do this type of work so there's no part of me that thinks this is a mistake for them to have the same fun <laughs> i'm having right but yet it's very stressful and you want them to be in it for the right reasons and you want them to be passionate about you know, their artistic life. You don't want them in it for the ego. Right. You want them. That's tough. That's tough. Yeah. And so we've talked about that from birth, you know, like, why are you doing it? You know, because if it's just to get liked by people, it won't work. Yeah. It has to be because you care about what you're doing. And I think, you know, they're both making choices that are about quality and following their passion. So euphoria has been pretty incredible this year. And it's been fun to see Maude on the show. And Iris is really funny in the bubble yeah and we we had a good time shooting that so did they like your direction do they go dad i don't know when iris was on love the tv show we did for netflix thank you i I, when i would show up on the set when i wasn't directing like john slattery directed a bunch of the episodes iris would always say why are you here i'm like i'm the producer of the show I, i don't need you here like, she so enjoyed not being directed by me. <laughs> Maya P., which of your films would you love to make a sequel to? Out of all the, out of all the movies. I'm pretty close to deciding if I'm going to make This Is 50 in the next year. 
I have an idea for it. I'm trying to decide if people really want it. Uh, uh, but I do get I want it. I'm, I'll be 50 in four months. Yeah, I get a lot of feedback on this as 40. I feel like the, the world of TikTok and Instagram uh, has elevated it. There's so many little moments that circulate. Mm-hmm. And I get a lot of people saying, are you going to do this as 50? It's time. Like they've tracked it that it's been 10 years. So probably probably that one. And I always wanted them to do a sequel to Superbad. And I know that Jonah said, oh, it'd be funny to do it when we're 70 or 80. But I really <laughs> wanted them to do a Superbad in college where Jonah flunks out of college and just shows up and visits Michael Sarah at college. But everyone, everyone was like, nah, we don't want to screw up Superbad by accidentally making a crappy second one. And I would always say the same thing. Well, that's like saying don't make the second episode of the of the Sopranos. Right. Like, so why do you think we would screw up the second one? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Danny, I, I'd like to go back to the start of Judd's career and ask the favorite joke you wrote for Larry Sanders. The show was groundbreaking. Like a, a favorite joke I wrote for Larry Sanders. It couldn't be a joke or a moment or a scene or. You know, one thing I'm very proud of that I worked on at Larry Sanders was the Jim Carrey moment in the finale. So Jim Carrey said he would do the show after not really answering for six years. So for six years, I asked him to do the show. And he would always not say no, but not say yes. And then finally, I called him. I said, Jim, it's literally the last episode. This is your only shot to be on the Larry Sanders show. And he said, I'll do it if I could be the best person who's ever done it. It has to be the best scene in the history of this show. That's what he said to you. He just said to me, I said, okay, Jim, let's do it. And so we were <laughs> trying to figure out what it would be. And, and there was a very funny idea about that Jim would come on and then in the commercial break, he would be really mean to Larry and say, oh, you're leaving, you're leaving TV. You, you think you're going to do movies? I'll destroy you. <laughs> and so we had that idea, but we didn't know what else to do. And years before... When both of us were single, one night we were talking to these these women at the improv, and they live like across the street. And we wind up across the street, and like nothing like happened, but they made us pancakes in the middle of the night, and then a woman put on Jennifer Holiday in uh uh what's that movie? Not um, Dream Girls. Dream Girls doing, right. and I'm telling you, yeah, you know, yep. that big song, and she just lip synced it for us, and it was like a blue velvet kind of bizarre <laughs> moment with me and Jim <laughs> in these strangers' apartment watching this woman <laughs> lip sync very emotionally to this song, and I never forgot it. And I said to Jim, maybe you could sing that song on the last Larry Sanders, and. It, he did it. It was so incredible. And after the first take, Gary was like, yeah, that's it. We're done. And Jim's like, no, no I want to do it again. I could do it better. And Gary was like, you want to do it again? Like he couldn't believe that there was any energy in Jim's body to like try to do it. And it was better. better? And, it, and it was better. It was better. And here's the crazy thing. I'm, I'm editing that documentary about Gary Shandling. And I get the footage, the raw dailies. Because I'm going to like recut the sequence in the doc. What's in the doc is not how it aired. And I noticed my mom is in the audience. And and also, the guy who owns Largo, my good friend Mark Flanagan, is in the audience with John Bryan. Wow. Who scored Eternal Sunshine, The Spotless Mind, and a lot of my movies. Yeah. And that 
that really blew me away. So in the doc, I, I use the moment where you see my mom. That's beautiful. Yeah. Did you get emotional? Oh, yeah. I just couldn't believe it. It was weird. Do you get emotional a lot? Oh, yeah. I'm an easy. Easy cry. Cry. What makes you cry? Uh, everything. Everything. I could cry. I, literally, the amount of times I'm crying. It's, it's Like when you see your daughter have a good performance or something? You oh, cry. yeah. Oh, yeah. Literally everything. I mean, uh, <laughs> I, mean I, I like being emotionally yeah. accessible and and vulnerable so yeah tv movies you know mo most things yeah I'll, I'll i'll go really hard i think about when i was a kid my grandfather died of a heart attack when i was a, a senior in high school and i'm at his funeral and he had produced a record by red buttons the borscht comedian and i'm sitting in a chair bawling my eyes out just snot and just crying and then suddenly, like someone said, Judd, this is red buttons. And I like shook his hand. You're emotional. Mid, mess. mid snotty, <laughs> bawling cry. <laughs> oh, man, that's amazing. By the way, you, you still go to therapy? You do therapy? Oh, yeah. You go to, you, you get anxiety? You deal with yeah. all that shit? Yeah. A lot of times I have two therapists. Really? I've, 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 I, all the last few years, I've had two therapists with two different ideas. One's a little more of a, more Buddhist mindfulness. Going the Gary Shandling path, maybe. And the other one's a little more about like evolution and fight or flight response and just almost the brain chemistry that leads to your panic or anxiety or depression. And, and I, I found that all really interesting. Just the way evolution has built you to be depressed. It built you to be scared. It thinks it's saving your life. And my therapist said to me, there's nothing your brain would like to do more than get you to stay in bed all day because then you're safe. Yeah. Because then a bear won't eat you. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and, and just the reality of what you're working against, that your body holds on to the bad stuff and kind of doesn't hold on to the good stuff because remembering the bad stuff in evolution saved your life. Oh, don't go in that cave. That's the one with the bear. And so you'd remember it the rest of your life. But if you had a nice meal and ate some berries in the woods you would just forget it five minutes later and <laughs> yeah. that's really what life is that you tend to hold on to the dark stuff yeah and so yeah and lately lately i haven't i haven't gone in a little while because i i there's a couple of self-help books i like so much i'm trying to see if i could really tune into them there's one called the untethered soul by michael singer uh that is it's all about the things we do to try to make everything in life work and how it makes no sense that you right. want every interaction to be positive and everything to work out well and how we're just making ourselves crazy mentally by that process. We're trying too hard, maybe. You know how I look at it? I, I think of it this way. I think I'm in comedy, but my big issue is that I need to lighten up. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a perfect uh, ending point. Look, you got the George Carlin documentary. What's it, what's it called? We have a title yet? It's called George Carlin's American Dream. George Carlin's American You must have just come up with that recently. Well, that was, uh, yeah, and that's the name of the big routine that some of the documentary is built around. And then uh, Sicker in the Head, you could you could order online now, the book of interviews. Uh, and the interviews. bubble. And the bubble will be out this spring on Netflix. There'll be a trailer coming out in a couple of weeks, and you'll see something super weird. Super weird. Super weird. We went... Somebody called me up and they I let them see it and they went, it's bonkers. 
I, like, you just <laughs> it is it's it's more bonkers than anything you've ever done i think yeah it's a, it's as close as we get to it's not exactly this but it is a kind of a combo between tropic thunder a christopher guest movie and <laughs> and a mel brooks movie sure i i could see that it's That's meant good... to just be a way of saying to the audience the last few years have been so terrible <laughs> can we at least laugh at it yeah can we just take a moment to commiserate look, about what we've been through. Look at the shit we've been through. Yeah. This is kind of like a, a little piece uh, of candy about this it. This has been an absolute joy. Uh, I can't thank you enough for being here. Ryan's a big fan of yours, as are everyone. I think everyone out there is probably a fan of Judd Apatow's. I appreciate that. I think it's that. safe to say that. Uh, I hope you have more and more success and bring us more and more good feeling movies. And I hope uh, 50 year old virgin, not 50 year old virgin. That could be it. It could maybe I do a combo could. crossover. Crossover. <laughs> that would be amazing. Uh, thank you for allowing me to be inside of you today. I've always wanted it. The, this is really, I mean, I reached out for it. You, you did. <laughs> and not only that, but you know, it's seldom. I guided you into me. I, I just said a message <laughs> to him. This never happens, by the way. I just said, I'd love to have you on my podcast. And usually it's like, oh, whatever, whatever. He yeah. immediately responds and goes, let's do it. I'm a listener. I like it. <laughs> I was on the I was on a plane. I was listening to the Kevin Nealon interview, and <laughs> you were talking about Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, and I literally looked up, and someone was watching it in front of me, and you were on the screen. What are the and odds I took a of picture that? of it and sent and it, to, sent it you. to me. What are the odds of that? It was Such a really random weird. movie. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and Kevin Nealon was amazing. But I love Kevin Nealon. He was like, Rosamund, was this therapy for you? This is <laughs> he's just leaning. Oh my god, he's so funny. I love him. Uh, thank you. This is amazing. Thank you. All right. Oh, what would what, you like mostly about that one? Just the, the, that it happened. <laughs> you were. You know, I, you know, what's funny is that you never, ever have asked this, but you, while, while I'm walking out with Judd, before, he didn't see it, but I, he goes, hey, you go, hey, can you get a picture? Well, no, what happened? What happened? What, I think you sensed. I, I, did, I, did, I didn't ask. I sensed it in your face. You were like, Ugh. You just went ahead and said, here's, here's how you did it. And it was really kind of nice. It was very subconscious. Uh, you, you went, hey, let's all get a picture. And then. You're like, oh, I can't get myself in the frame. Here, I'll just do one of you two. And then you did one. Bam. I remember that now. You do. Well, I didn't ask. We did it. I'm not good about asking for things, and you did it for me, and that was very nice. I appreciate it. I appreciate you appreciating it. Yeah. And uh, I think he appreciated it. He's he's a gem, man. He's a legend. (laughs) He's uh, Judd, if you're listening, thank you. Thank you for coming on the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, just a reminder, guys, if you like the podcast, please write a review. Please write a review and follow us at Inside You Podcast on Instagram and Facebook, at Inside You Pod on the Twitter. I'm going to be in St. Louis this coming weekend to sign autographs and to do a Smallville Nights improv show with Tom Welling. Get your tickets. I'll be in Liverpool the weekend of May 21st. Uh, June 10th, I'll be in Metropolis, Illinois, uh, Australia, June 17th through the 28th. And uh, also uh, my band, Sunspin. We're coming out with a new album. We're going to be playing. Uh, May 28th, which is a Saturday. Am I correct? Is that a Saturday? How would you know that? Uh, the, it is a Saturday. You're sure? I am. Because I'm on a plane on the 29th, it is. Which, which is a Sunday. It's yeah. a Saturday, yeah. folks. Um, so thank you for all the support and love. But come come watch uh, the band. You can go to stageit.com and get tickets. Or you can go to sunspin.com. You can also book Zooms. You can go and cameo with me. I'm on there, and uh, what would I do without my patrons, my lovable patrons who support the podcast? I talk about you every week because it's just the truth, and you stick around, and 
it's it's marvelous. Sometimes I feel like, do I want to still do this podcast? And then you know, so much feedback, so much love that how could I not want to do it? So uh, thank you for keeping me motivated, excited, and feeling blessed. Uh, go to patreon.com slash inside of you if you want to join Patreon and help the podcast out uh, right now. Also, big thanks to Ryan right here, my man Bryce, my man Jason. Couldn't do the podcast without you. Literally couldn't do it. I, I just, I'd be fucked. Mm-hmm. I'd be completely fucked. Did I say <laughs> F twice in a row? You I did. try not to say it. It's, you know, it's okay. Every once in a while, it's all right. You're an adult. I'm an adult. Here we go. These are the top tier patrons. If you join Patreon, if you're in the top tier, you get your name read off every week on every episode. These are the people that really help out. Nancy D, Leah S, Sean, uh, Sarah V, Little Lisa, Yukiko, Jill E, Brian H, Nico P, Robert B, Jason W, Kristen K, Raj C, Joshua D, CJP, Jennifer N, Stacy L, Jamal F, Janelle B, Kimberly E, Mike E, Eldon, uh, Supremo. 99. More. Ramira. Ramira. Santiago M. Chad W. Liam P. Janine R. Maya P. Maddie S. Belinda N. Chris H. Dave H. Sheila G. Brad D. Ray H. Tabitha. T. Wow. Tom N. Liliana A. Talia M. Betsy D. Uh, Chad L. Rochelle. Marion. Meg K. Dan K. Dan N. As Mm. in nice. Angel M. Rhiannon C. Corey K. Super Sam. Dev Nexon. Michelle A. Jeremy C. Andy T, Cody R, Gavinator, David C, John B, Brandy D, uh, Vor, Camille, uh, N H S S, the C, Joey M, Willie F, David H, Omar I, Design OTG, Eugene and Leah, Chris P, Nikki G, Corey, Nicole, Patricia, Heather L, Jake B, James B, Bobbit, Joshua B, Tony G, and don't forget Mel S. Can't forget Mel S. Uh, Orlando C, John B, Caroline R, Rob E, Rob, Robbie, I said, Paul C, Christine S, Sarah S, Eric H, Spring, Jennifer R, Shane R, and Emma R. Those are the top tier patrons. Couldn't do it without you. I thank you guys all for listening. I really appreciate you. We're going to keep doing this, try to give you interviews that make you think, that help you out maybe, that uh, some people you can relate to. Um, we try to get deep every episode, but uh, from myself, Michael Rosenbaum here in the Hollywood Hills of California. Ryan Tay is here as well. An old wave to old camera C. That's camera C up <laughs> We're going to call that camera C now. We're going to call that camera C after all these years. Great. Uh, we love you. Be good to yourself. Most importantly, thank you for allowing me to be inside of each and every one of you. It means the world. And I'm wearing the hat today. I haven't worn the hat in a while. I don't feel like I wear the hat as, as frequently. It's a good hat. It's a good hat on me, and I can't find one that's just like this. It's got to be a big enough hat to fit my head. I've got a big head, Ryan. you got a Sasquatch head. i got a Sasquatch hat and head. Is that what you said, a head? Hat, head. Oh, head, whatever. whatever. Uh, I love you guys. Thanks so much. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.